Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nick Clark. I'm Nancy Durrant. And I'm Nick Curtis. Coming up on today's show. We'll be reviewing Charlie Josephine's Cowboys. I've been on the road some time and I'm weary. I need a quiet place to lay my head. Not here! I said a quiet place to lay my head. And this here is where I've chosen. Now the sheriff's you. office is just right across the way. Co-directed by Josephine and Sean Holmes, this is on at the Royal Court. For our second review, it's The Good John Proctor at the German Street Theatre. Directed by Anna Ryder, this is a new production that follows a critically acclaimed staging of the play in New York. Written by Talene Monaghan, this play is a prequel to the 20th century classic The Crucible. Straight off the plane and into our studio, it's Grammy and Tony winning musician and creator of Hades Town the Musical, Anais Mitchell. I couldn't sleep one night. I was staying in Manhattan. I went for a jog in the early morning and I saw these kids that were kind of camped out outside the theater and they were dressed up as the characters of the show. And I thought to myself, I have no idea what this show means to these kids. Like, it's not mine. You know, it is, it's living in the world and it's its own animal. Hades Town returns to London in February. Welcome back to our theatre podcast. Before we start, if you've not yet done so, then please do hit follow on the podcast. That way you'll be alerted every week when a new episode lands. And tell us what you think of the show and what you'd like to hear us talk about. Get in touch via our email, which is theatrepod at standard.co.uk. So the big news this week, Mr. Clark. Well, it's our 50th episode. It's our 50th episode. (laughs) The biggest news in theatre. (laughs) Bring out more flags. Um, Is there any any other news that can even compete with this I think not, but there are a few other odds and sods kicking around, (laughs) including the fact that the the new artistic directors, the co-artistic directors of the RSC, Tamara Harvey and Daniel Evans, announced their first season. It's kind of interesting. It's not the obvious Shakespeare's they're kicking off with. There's a Love's Labour's Lost in there. There's Mm. a Pericles with um, Alfred Enoch. Mm. Um, Daniel Evans himself is going to appear as Marlowe's Edward II, which I can't recall having been revived for more than 20 years. Yeah, Simon Russell Beale did it a long, long time ago, yeah. Um, I did that for A-levels. So yeah. There you uh, go. Uh, well, it's, it's the play about everybody knows what, which everybody knows one thing about, yes, <laughs> which is how Edward dies. <laughs> Always interesting to see how they, they attempt to stage that. There's also some, there's an adaptation of Hannah Creshy's The Buddha of Suburbia. Tamara Harvey at the press conference made a very good case of saying that the lead character in that goes on a sort of Pericles-style journey, so there is a sort of 
resonance there sure. with, with Shakespeare's work. Oh. There's going to be a school for scandal as well, paired with the Merry Wives of Windsor. Oh, with I Samantha did that Spiro at school. I was Lady oh. Sneerwell. Would you believe? <laughs> Would you believe? Oh, well, <laughs> everything is connected. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there will eventually be a Hamlet starring podcast alumnus Luke Thallon, directed by Rupert Gould, who's been a great nice. champion of him as an actor at the mm. Almeida. Very little London presence this year. Everything is happening up in Stratford. There's one co-production with the kiln that will come in uh, a new play by an Iranian-American writer, I believe, called The English. Nancy, they got in touch with the RSC, got in touch with you this morning, didn't they? Yeah, they wanted to sort of clarify, actually, um, that they're still really very passionate about the relationship that they have with London and they will be obviously seeking to bring stuff down here, you know, at every given opportunity. But at the moment, they're not kind of, you know, they just, they just, they sort of have stuff that they want to announce, but as yet, it's not, not doable. But, you know, and they've also, of course, they've got Totoro, yeah. you know, coming back. <clears throat> they've got Matilda the Musical, Still sort of running, chugging yes. away yeah, at the Cambridge yeah. Theatre. Well, Hamnet yes. is currently at the Garrick, um, and The Empress at the Lyric Hammersmith, and of course, Cowboys, which we're going to review mm. today, yeah. is an RSC production. So, um, we're not short of it, but um, We're not there, there is more to come. I suppose the thing to take away from the press conference was I came out of it quite sort of excited. and I can't that's remember cool. the last time I was excited by an RSC press conference, frankly. Yeah. Um, it's an organisation that's really needed a, a boot up the backside for some years, and maybe it's finally going to get it. Cool. Mm. Yeah, I think that, I think Tamara Harvey and Daniel Evans are a very good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel, I don't know him particularly, but he's meant to be extremely charismatic and yes. very dynamic. And Tamara was running Theatre Cluid yeah. like, so well. Yeah. I think it's for the last, I don't know, eight, ten, quite a while mm. she was there. Yeah. But um, a very effective and um, much-loved leader. They um, certainly so I think seem it's a good thing. to have good chemistry. And the interesting thing about Evans is that he's an actor as well as a director. Yeah. As mm. I say, he's going to be in Edward II. And the musical theatre performer as well, yeah. right? Absolutely, yes, yeah. And I think that brings an extra sort of layer of understanding and dimension to, yeah. Yeah. to you know, his work as an artistic director. Um, you know, it's been very interesting having a, an actor running Shakespeare's Globe for the past however many years. Um, mm. I think that has in some ways enriched the work. But it was nice to have some good news because the news mm. elsewhere was really depressing in, in London. The, the, the stage report, I think we all read this week about the end-of-year accounts of um, the Royal Court. Young Vic and Hampstead Theatre, yes. three of our main new writing yeah, producing venues, have yeah. had really bad years and are looking basically at you know completely restructuring their business yeah. plans, probably with a more commercial way, probably bringing in more tried and tested product, probably doing mm. more co-productions, I should imagine. Which, which especially for the Hampstead and the Royal Court is, I think, particularly depressing because they are such well-known new writing yeah, venues yeah, you yeah. know and quite a lot of playwrights particularly were unhappy about the way that the, the some of the um the information was put out yes. this this mm. week suggesting that it blamed the work for for the for the um, collapse if you like the problem is that if you do new writing you are always going to find that it's not quite ready or it's mm. not you know, it's not Western Standard or it's not whatever. You know, you need to be able to experiment. And that's what those places were for. Yeah. And that's, it, it, it seems like that's not going to be possible but anymore. So where are a, you going to do new writing? You get you're a Jerusalem do it the and then you get a Constellations and you think, yeah. well, this is what yeah, can exactly. emerge and these then, venues. Thank God. You know? But, you yes. know, like the, it, it just feels like the spaces for new writing are being eroded so sort of horrendously. You've got the Bush, you've got 503, mm. both of which are doing brilliant work. Yeah. But if we lose Hampstead and the Royal Court, then... You know, it's really been denuded, hasn't mm, it? Yeah. One thing that really leapt out at me from the um, Royal Court report particularly was um, 
saying that the right to fail is no longer sustainable. And that's yeah. a phrase that's been that's a sort ch- of pretty chilling that. a talisman yeah. for the last, you know, 40 or 50 years that theatres have to have the right, you know, you, you um, have to have failures in order to... And in, in all arts. Yeah. I mean, how you can't, nothing is a sure thing. Yeah. No. And as Alistair Smith said in the stage, you know, what's subsidy for if it's not providing that buffer for the right to fail, for or the support for the right to fail? Yeah. Anyway, it's all a bit depressing. So we move on. Cheer you all up (laughs) in Jesus, Mary, Joseph and the Wee Donkey News. uh, Line of Duty star Adrian Dunbar is to make his musical theatre debut this summer. So he is going to be in Kiss Me Kate uh, at the Barbican. The Cole Porter musical opens in June and also stars Stephanie J. Block. And so all those Line of Duty, all those Lod fans, you head down to the Barbican. Absolutely. This is very clearly modelled on the success of Anything Goes, isn't it? Came into the Barbican straight after the pandemic. It was the first non-socially distanced Mm. main stage show Mm. and absolutely blew the doors off back then. So they're clearly hoping to repeat that. Barbican as well needs to to make money in this climate. Well, yeah, it's a big old space. I'll tell you what, though. I saw, um, I've only ever seen Adrian Dunbar on stage once and that was as Claudius in I think it was Cush Jumbo's Hamlet and frankly Adrian Drumbar was bloody awful so I'm really really hoping that he turns out to be better well, at musical theatre yeah, maybe with a tune on his tap shoes yeah, it'll be maybe. a revelation mm. to you yeah, maybe. <laughs> welcome back Lady Sneerwell yeah, <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> 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 Right, time for our first review of the week. It's Cowboys, O-I-S, rather than O-Y-S. Yeah, like Skater Boy. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Where's all the men at? Where? Out of town. Out of town on business. All of them. Oh, but the sheriff. They're due back any time now, so you'd How long have they been gone? This was a theatre pod team outing. Yep. Um, and I think we're all I think we're all minded to be nice about it, but we do have reservations. We do. We all met at the interval and I, I um, another one of our colleagues was there and she said what was I thinking? And I said, I, I really like the fact that there's, there's so much sort of heat and fury whenever um, gender identity or trans stuff comes up. It's really nice that Charlie Josephine is out there writing basically baggy but joyful and broadly hopeful things where mm. people just get to live their true selves yeah. and their best lives and um, hopefully, you know, in, in the case of this, you know, find find romance. It's a really sweet story. It's a really sweet first And we half should that, make it clear <laughs> that it's, yeah, all right, sure. But <laughs> we should make it clear that the bones of it is basically a sort of classic Western. Yes. It's based on Westerns. Charlie Josephine was very keen uh, when commissioned to write about masculinity and felt that, especially from the point of view of someone who was not born into a male body which is their experience and I interviewed Charlie Josephine actually which you can read uh, on the website at the moment but they felt that cowboys with a YS were a kind of like a great kind of frame within which to think about it so that's sort of broadly the big the starting point for this show and you're right it is it's a it's a stranger rides into town isn't it that's the yeah, you know that's, totally. the, that's well, the premise and in your it. interview you said that they went back to watch a lot of it and found them very misogynistic and very yeah, you know yeah, tropes, yeah, very exactly. masculine tropes what's interesting so I, you know I think the western is great it can often be a much maligned genre but um, when I was at university I did a seminar on Sergio Leone's films and it actually sort of built in this lifelong now love of, of, mm. of the genre. And what I'm really liking at the moment is how it's now being reassessed and, and yeah. reframed. Charlie Josephine's absolutely right. You know, there is a very specific lens through which 
99% of the older Westerns are seen through. Mm. But we're beginning to see, so the English on um, TV, a brilliant show, but mm. that was seen through a woman who played by Emily Blunt and um, a Native American played by Chesky Spencer. So, you mm. know, things are beginning to change. And again, here... I mean, we are so primed for, I think the marketing calls it a rollicking queer Western. I mean, we couldn't be more ready for this. So (laughs) I was so excited. And I've got to say, beforehand, this was really buzzy. I've never seen the, well, I haven't for years seen the court so full. And people were really looking forward to this. And it's true. And And I mean, as you might expect on press night, especially the audience there skewed heavily queer, Mm. very much so. And from the reaction on that, on the night, I would say for whatever reason, whether it's representation or whether it's about the message, whatever it is, it means a huge amount. Yeah. Yes. That yeah. was really lovely. So the uh, the premise we should probably explain mm. is that this, it's a town of women, isn't it? Yeah. Because the menfolk have gone away gold prospecting and are largely believed to be dead. There's no, no post going back and forth here. The women's letters are going unanswered. They're basically isolated. They're cut off from They're, the exactly. world outside. Yes. And they've already, therefore, subverted traditional gender roles. Yeah. You know, they've, they're, they're tilling the fields. They're yeah. running the bar. They're, they're shooting, shooting horse. horses. <laughs> they shoot horses, don't they? They yes. do, yeah. They literally, they literally do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they don't literally a horse on no, the stage. No, 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 that, that is radical. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that would be extremely expensive as well. Yeah, really they can't afford that. Doing doing it every night for a run. And then a, uh, as we say, a stranger comes into town, uh, an outlaw, a trans mask character called Jack, Jack Cannon. Jack Cannon. Yes, such a good name. Yeah. Um, with interesting results, I think he's he's the sort of trigger, if I could use that yeah. word. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I want to give a real shout out here though to Grace Smart, who um, brilliant young designer who designed set, but also the costumes because as all the characters find their true selves, they arrive on stage in these amazing yeah, colourful costumes yeah. that, that Grace designed. And uh, absolutely it's like amazing. It's a sort of line dance session done done by Drag Race, isn't it? Yeah. yeah it's, yes. It's absolutely. You know Yes, and it blows away all these sort of muted the old west colours, the browns of the britches and all that to really brilliant, vibrant colours. So already, this is the you're getting a sense of of what this show is sort of. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Shout out also to Sophie Melville, who's who's the the lead character and has absolute lead character energy all the way through this. She's the saloon keeper. She exactly. She's Miss Lillian, who ends up sort of hosting the stranger who's coming to town, who's Jack Cannon, who's played by Vinnie Heaven. Yeah, brilliantly, I think as well. I really like Vinnie Heaven. I thought. so as well, actually, and I think well, they're great. In the, they're so great in the first half. I mean, we'll talk about the yeah, second yeah. half yeah. in a minute. But I love that that sort of performative cowboy masculinity mm. that they're doing. It's so seductive and charming when yeah. you do it like this. It's kind of interesting to me. And I mean, I'm obviously I'm looking at this through the the eyes of a straight woman who's been watching the same TV as everyone else for the rest of my whole life. But how sexy it is actually mm. when that kind of performed swagger is tempered by its knowing undercutting. You know, Charlie Josephine talked to me about the kind of the way that men and women are all playing roles. Mm. And this shifts that playing of a role into play which stops it from being boring and oppressive and actually just makes it a little bit sexy. <laughs> I thought it was great. Yeah. I was like, oh, that person's like, oh, that is so funny when the person comes in, when Jack comes in and all the women are like, uh-huh. Yeah. And, and like, yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> Especially, it was really exciting. Yeah. Well, it's, we're not giving away too much of a secret if we say, if we say that uh, Jack and Miss Lillian get together in a, yeah, in a, in a sex scene, which is a hint of the problems that have come in the, in the second half, I think, in that the sex scene goes on forever. Oh, God, it it's really It's done does. in a bathroom with a sort of blue light, which is also 
the, the blue light reminded me of the sort of erotic thrillers of the 90s. You know, yeah. they're, they're, <laughs> that, that's a very sort of, uh, that's again sending up an old sort of mm. trope, really, yeah. isn't it? Well, you and know, there are and some amusing it. jokes in that the lights come back on and one's got a cigarette and a gun, the lights go off and come back on, the other one's got a cigarette yeah, and a exactly. gun. There's, there's some nice little touches. Yeah. But, you know, I think there's a problem with the use of dance and movement overall, actually. I think it's a bit inconsistent. Mm. So... There are some wonderful moments of yeah. dance, like especially when it's flavoured with that kind of club slash vogue scene kind yeah, of oh. vibe. That um, goes down really well and it works really well. People were I out think. their seats. For they that really one. were. Lucy McCormick, we should say, is front and centre on one of those and was absolutely brilliant. Some listeners may know her from her sort of, uh, I, I don't know, I had to go <laughs> I had to go onto her website basically to, to work out what her shows are, but it's described as nightclub interruptions, cabaret interventions and extravaganza theatre shows. And that kind of sums up Lucy McCormick's performance work. Brilliant. Yeah, um, 100%. And she brings... Quite a lot of that to yeah. Cowboys as well. She does. But overall, the general movement direction, particularly in things like the sex scene, felt really scrappy. So that scene, the way that they try and do it is that they kind of flick between scenes. So the lights come on, the lights go off, the lights come on, the lights go off, and they're in different positions each time. As you say, it's interminable. It goes on way too long. Mm. But also, it felt a bit like sluggish and repetitive. Yes. It wasn't quite... It needed much more imagination and also, like they're they're in this bath, but the bath is sunk into the stage. So if you're short in the stalls, it's really hard to see the funniest bits, actually. Mm. And I just feel like I really appreciated the idea, but the execution was too messy and too slow. I really wanted it to work. I knew what they were trying to do, yeah. but they just weren't doing it, and that was really annoying. Yeah, <laughs> but it is a foreshadowing of the annoying stuff to come because yeah, it's at the true. very end of the of the first act, it's it's not going to. Surprise anyone if I tell them that the men come back. Oh, inevitably, the, <laughs> the men patriarchy come back. ruins everything. Exactly, yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 the, yeah, the patriarchy really does ruin it. Yeah. Because <laughs> after that, Charlie Josephine really doesn't seem to know what they want to do with, yeah. with the, the situation that they've now got. So it descends into sort of argument and debate. Then there's a gunfight, which just seems to go on for. Ever and ever, yeah, just really sort of does. jokey gunfight. And a Western obviously needs a gunfight, but mm. yeah, it, it needed to be so much tighter. So yeah, because that's the word. Actually, it needed to be w- everything about it needed to be tighter. Yeah, this is billed as two hours forty minutes. It was pretty close to three hours by the time we got out of there. Really. Mm. And if you're not Shakespeare, then you really have to justify a three hour yeah. time. And, and this show just doesn't. It's such a shame that Jack Jack effectively disappears for most of the second well, half. And I was mm. going to say, actually, Sophie Melville's character takes her much more backstage. And I think that's a big problem. Because in the first act, she is kind of the centre around Mm. it. I know that Jack comes in and changes everything, but she is this amazing charisma at the heart of it. Mm -hmm. And it takes, you know, that charisma sort of takes such a backward step in the second half that I was longing to have more from her, more, you know, to really... Take take the play by the scruff of the yeah. neck, and it's a it's a real sign of desperation that not only do you lose your two main characters, you then have to bring in two other strangers at the end to sort of fix the play mm. as a yeah. sort of because well, L J Parkinson, I've got to say, as one eyed Charlie was great. Oh, oh <laughs> it's was true. Let's just be incredible. a big shout out to L J Parkinson yeah. because yeah, that funny. was that scene injected yeah. the energy back into yes. it. Yeah. and kept us going for the interminable gunfight. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. very, very funny. The yeah. best, the funniest Midlands-accented cowboy I've ever met. <laughs> so <laughs> good. They were so good. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's, it's a shame because, as I say, this this I've had a great deal of affection towards this yeah, show. Yeah. Hugely, and I still, and I still do. Yeah, like yeah, having, I even having been a bit like, oh, bloody hell, it's a bit late. Yeah. But... 
Charlie Josephine has co-directed it with Sean Holmes. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I think it's the first one that Josephine has directed. I'm as far not as entirely I'm entirely sure. As far as I'm aware. But yeah, but certainly I think in terms of a large ensemble, and this is quite a large ensemble. It is a large ensemble, and it's you know it's a big RSC production. It will yeah, have it's had, unwieldy. You know, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean you've got because you've got to say that a lot of the performances, most of the performances, a lot of the writing, it's it's. Great, and, and yeah. the message, it's all it's joyous and it's something yeah. it's that you can all get behind. And it's a really fun but a very flawed show. And, yeah. And, yeah. and I think In There is a great show. I know. And I really just, hope they find it. Just, yeah. let, just let an editor at it. It's a shame. One thing I would like to say is I think Josephine is a, is a tremendously humane writer. Yes. I love the sort of um, affection that they have for their characters and mm. for all of them. There's even a... Even, uh, even the, the patriarchy get a bit of a shout-out in here. Yeah. One character in the second half sort of says... Of, of sort of male rage, where is this all supposed to go? I know, you know it's rather it's a, sweet that moment. Really, and also, yes. I tried. <laughs> yeah, yes. You know, even the yes. worst of the men, you can actually see humanity in I there tried as my well. best. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah I tried they, my yes. best. That's they right. tried, like, they interviewed a lot of men yeah. in order to be able to kind of get all of the kind of viewpoints on it, you know, not just so non binary people, but trans men and um, cis men and straight men and gay mm. men and so on. That's Part of their modus operandi is that generosity yeah. and bringing in all of the, as much as possible of the of the of the ways that this affects people, like masculinity, if mm. you like, affects people. That is wonderful, but that in fact is almost part of the problem because it's very difficult to include everything. Mm. Yeah. In you know when you write a big feature and you have to mm. kill your darlings, you cut out some of the best quotes or the best ideas because it just doesn't. Because otherwise it just go on forever. Yeah. It's the same with with drama. It's something that will, that takes immense skill to make work. Yeah. Anyway, do go and find Nancy's really excellent interview with Charlie Josephine. It's a fascinating read. But also, you know, do go and see the show. It is, as I said, it's flawed, but it is really fun and yeah. it's worth it. Yeah, it's so lovely. you know, go go and find out yourself. Yeah. Right, let's go to the ads. In part two, we're joined by Anais Mitchell. She's here to tell us about the return of Hades Town to London. Plus, in a theatre pod first, she'll even play us some of the show's music. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
Hi, I'm Michael R. Jackson, and you are listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Anais Mitchell, the writer of the music, lyrics, and book of Hades Town, a show that's been at the National Theatre, went to Broadway, and now it's back making its West End debut. As well as writing hugely successful shows, she's also a musical artist, both solo and with the band Bonnie Light Horseman, uh, with a string of acclaimed albums. Welcome, Anais. Great to be here. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> now, first of all, um, could you set the scene for us? What is Hades Town? So Hades Town is uh, is a sung through musical. It's based on Greek mythology. It kind of centers around these two love stories. One is the Orpheus and Eurydice story. Um, these young lovers, Orpheus, the great poet and musician, and then his bride Eurydice, who goes to the underworld. And then the other love story is the the immortal gods Hades and Persephone, Hades king of of the dead, of the underworld, of the of industry, and his wife Persephone, queen of the seasons. And they have this kind of ancient troubled marriage. And it's this epic storyline, but it's it's got a very specific setting. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? It's sort of an alternative 30s era, d- depression era America and sort of steampunky. You know, it's not meant to be tied mm. to a particular time or place. Like I think it exists in a sort of more of a mythic kind of uh, dreamscape space, but it does take a lot of inspiration, as you're saying, from the Great Depression era, specifically the city of New Orleans. It's like all over the the arrangements in the music and the and the set is sort of based on Preservation Hall, this incredible legendary um, music venue in New Orleans. A lot of Broadway and West End shows take a long time to develop. But this one, I mean, really has been with you for over 20 years. I mean, in terms of just from the inspiration for it, can you tell me a little bit about the when you first got the idea to do a sort of a song really of, of about Orpheus and Eurydice? Yeah, I mean, I think it took so long because I just didn't know what I, what I was doing <laughs> or what I was getting into. I don't come from the theater world. I, I come from singer-songwriter world and I love folk music and kind of Balladry. I was always interested in in uh, storytelling by way of songs. You know, I do love epic ballads and the sort of Texas uh, raconteur tradition where it's really like a little novella inside of a song. And at some point kind of early in my songwriting life, I got curious about telling a longer form story with songs. And um, I actually was – I was driving in my car. I was in my early 20s. I had just – started getting gigs and I would drive like a ridiculous distance for a a tip gig basically and I was on this extremely long drive at night alone in my car and the chorus of that song is called Wait For Me kind of just dropped out of the sky and like into my lap as I was driving. For me it was also just yeah that um that feeling of coming right out of college and start you know coming into the world and coming up against how the world is and um this story seemed to encapsulate a lot of what I was feeling then and then it has continued to give in different ways now you know I'm in my 40s now I sort of can identify with the older characters more it's opening in the west end are you still making changes now you said it's developed over all that time yeah oh my god it's so funny you just ask that because I I am part of the reason I'm here in London right now is I'm going to try two edits tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for better, for worse. And I think what's really interesting, this is mythic, this is sort of vast, but climate change, there's politics, the politics of fear, I think. we It deals with a lot of political and, and issues like that. Was that always important for you right from the beginning? Yeah, it kind of was. Mm. I would say that the climate change stuff sort of evolved, but it was there in the earliest versions of the 
show because it's connected with the wall. You know, I can actually remember Why We Build the Wall was one of the first songs I wrote for the show, and it was um, it came very quickly. Like usually, I spend months and months, you know, editing, writing a song, and this one just came kind of fully formed. Almost before I understood what it meant or what it was about, but then when I looked at the lyrics, I thought I was thinking about kind of you know what happens if parts of the world become uninhabitable, and then those people are displaced and they are knocking at the door of the of the places of relative wealth and security. Who among us in those places of relative wealth and security is not going to want to be behind a wall of some kind? There was something about those two themes that went together, and then of course. The Persephone character and her relationship with Hades. This became a sort of a touchstone for that for those themes because Hades is king of industry. He's mining, you know, he's mining oil and coal and making wealth out of it. And Persephone is the queen of seasons and and nature and the balance of the natural cycles. And so for them to have this just epic and troubled um, marriage felt like it it spoke about the themes in a, in a human way. Yeah, and they're themes that have only become more pressing since you started working on it, it feels like. Yeah. Especially with what we're seeing now. And I mean, it was a full decade before any talk in American politics of walls and, you know, with Trump and all of that sort of stuff. When you saw that, do you think, wow, I'm prescient or, oh God, I can't believe this is the way it's gone? <laughs> I think it's more like Trump was tapping into the mythology. Do you know what I mean? Like the idea of a wall is way older than him. And obviously we've seen walls, you know, different countries and at different times. I think he tapped into it because it's an image that works well for people that are feeling insecure. Yeah. Let's just pause for a moment here in a very special theatre podcast first. Anais is going to play us a song from Hadestown. This is Way Down Hadestown. Follow that dollar for a long way down Far away from the poor house door you Either get to hell or to Hadestown Ain't no difference anymore Way down Hadestown Way down under the ground Hound dog howling, the whistle blow Train come rolling, clickety-clack Everybody trying to get a ticket to go But those who go, they don't come back They're going way down Hadestown Way down under the ground Winter's nigh and summer's o'er Hear that high and lonesome sound Of my husband coming forth To bring me home to Hadestown Way down Hadestown Way down under the ground Way down Hades town, way down under the ground. Mm. 
Mr. Hades is a mighty king Must be making some mighty big deals Seem like he owns everything Kinda makes you wonder how it feels One, two, three, four, wait down Hades town, wait down under the ground So to talk more about Hades Town, uh, have you had inspiration like with the myth that landed out of the sky? Have you had that sort of little spark that you think I can follow something down? Mm. You mean for like a for a another show? Piece? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I shouldn't say it on a, <laughs> I shouldn't say it. it on the air <laughs> until you put the, the elbow grease. Yeah. In. yeah. <laughs> the show has already played in London at the National Theatre in 2018. It went to Broadway, won a sackload of awards. Um, and now it's in the West End. Have you still been working on it? Are there any marked differences from the first time around in, in the UK? Yeah. So the National was our last stop before Broadway, you know, and we had done the show off-Broadway, and then we'd gone to Edmonton, Canada, and then we came to London, and and the show changed each time. And so the feedback we got in London was really the last um, last call <laughs> for uh, for edits, basically, before Broadway. The National was incredible. It's just, you know, one of the wonders of the world. Like, what a beautiful institution. I remember at the time, um, the director was Rufus Norris, and he sat in on a lot of our creative meetings. And I remember, specifically, he was kind of anti-button. Do you know what a button is at the end of a song where you sort of, like, you make like a zazzy like resolution of the music so that you indicate to the audience or you beg of them like please applaud <laughs> please applaud for this song and on Broadway you know there's just every song has a yeah. button on it and I remember Rufus being like maybe what happens if we don't what if we don't button that and just allowed the feeling to sort of remain internal and this, the flow of the story to keep going and I loved that because it felt like a sort of anti-commercial <laughs> approach you know yeah no absolutely and I wondered as you know Seeing Broadway is, you know, I'm sure for, for a, an American performer, you know, a real pinnacle. What did it feel like for you when you saw that hoarding up with Hades Town on it for the first time and crowds going in to see your show on Broadway? Yeah, it, w- it was never the goal. I mean, it, it, it became the goal at a certain moment to go to Broadway. But in Never My Wildest Dreams, when I started writing this piece, did I imagine that it would go to Broadway? And, and, and yeah, to see <laughs> to see it on the marquee, all lit up. And I remember at the very last days I was working on the show in Manhattan, I, I couldn't sleep one night. I was staying in Manhattan, and I, I went for a jog in the early morning, and I saw these kids that were kind of camped out outside the theater, and they were dressed up as the characters of the show. Amazing. And I thought to myself, I have no idea what this show means to these kids. Like, I is not mine, you know? It is... It's living in the world, and it's its own animal. Um, and people have their own relationship to it that I can't But you got understand. it there, and they connected to something that, you know, you brought. <laughs> so that must be something. Yeah, it feels like, amazing. We've talked about other musical projects. Hades um, Town took 15 years. Um, will it yeah. take a shorter time than that? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> you know, I think what I'm really curious about now, and I'll say, like, I've had so much fun the last few years since we opened on Broadway. Mm making records. I got to make another songwriter record for myself, and it had been a really, really long time, and tour that. And then my band, Bonnie Light Horseman, um, put out a, a record, and we've made, now made a, an LP that's coming out this coming year. And it has felt so good to be back in that world and to make 
music for the sake of music and sort of be in the process of writing where it's you can follow the song wherever it wants to go and it doesn't have to <laughs> advance your plot and develop your characters and the things that need to happen on stage. And so I guess what I feel really curious about is all the different ways there are of doing this. What about a play with music, but the music doesn't advance plot necessarily, but is there, you know, as a sort of a tonal element? Um, and what about a more theatrical version of a sort of a, of a, a, a concert show? So I guess I, I'm excited to be in the sandbox of it all. Well, uh, we very much look forward to the next project. Um, Anais Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us on the Standard Theatre Podcast. Thanks, Nick. And do stick around because we'll play one more of Anais's songs at the end of this podcast. Let's go to another very quick ad break. In part three, we'll be reviewing The Good John Proctor at the German Street Theatre. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hi, I'm Tuppence Middleton and you're listening to the Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back to the pod. Time for our second review, The Good John Proctor at the German Street Theatre. Nick and Nancy, any good? Interesting, fascinating, weird. Um, (laughs) This is a a prequel to The Crucible, Arthur Miller's The Crucible, about the Salem witch trials of the 17th century, refocused as a story of effectively organised child abuse, basically, the way that young women in this society were sort of indentured as servants or or labourers into family homes uh, and were routinely abused by the men in the families. What's really strange about it is that although the setting is historical, is Salem in the 17th century, the language used is sort of 21st century valley oh oh my god you look beautiful stuff sort of arthur miller by way of clueless it's a bit <laughs> yes yes that is basically it it's so fetch <laughs> we should I, say that we know that's mean girls and not clueless of course we know that. yeah of course <laughs> we yes. know this um but uh, i think the i think the idea here by uh, writer Talene monahan is make a point that this story could be contemporary these sort of power dynamics still go on, but it is a, it's it's sustained remarkably well, I think, as a conceit, but it is a really strange conceit, and you do have to get over it, don't you I, think? It didn't give me any trouble at all, actually. Oh, really? No, not at all. It expresses that they're just teenagers. That's the thing. I'm not sure it's like, look, this is happening now. I think it's very much kind of like these are just teenage girls, although they, they live in a different time, and they are, of course, different. They, are, they have been the same this whole time, you know, yeah. and I think that's the point. I actually really rather like this show. Mm. At first, I wanted to call it a vignette, but that's a bit insulting, I think. I think it's a cogent and well-thought-through illustration of the fact that 
as you say, young women in this community, uh, no doubt in the real Salem, but also in Arthur Miller's fictionalised yeah. version of it, because, of course, this is a prequel, essentially, to The Crucible. Mm. And it takes place the winter before, I think, um, before the events of The Crucible. But that young women in that society are being systematically failed in all areas of their existence, basically. What really came across to me is that they were given little to no education. They've got absolutely no guidance on how to move into adulthood. Um, So one of them gets her period. She's got absolutely no idea what it is. She thinks the devil is in her. You know, nobody explains it to her. One of the other teenagers half explains it, sort of says, oh, don't worry about that. Happens every month. You know, here's a rag kind of thing. But like nobody knows what it is. The people to whom it is happening don't know what it is. And that's like, I mean, can you imagine how terrifying? Um, They're actively oppressed by the religious teachings by which their community lives. They're exploited when they're at the most vulnerable. I mean, for example, there's a character in it called Mercy, I don't know if Mercy appears in The Crucible, does she, Nick? I think you she would does, remember? Yes. Yeah. But as you say, it becomes clear that she's been, over time, that she's probably been a victim of, of abuse since she was an extremely small child, which is when she came into the house where she works. And then there's also Abigail, who is, of course, the, the central uh, catalyst in The Crucible to yes. everything that happens. And her experience, she's, she's like... What is she in this, Nick? 12, She's 13? 12, yes. She's she, 12 she turns 12 during old. the course of the action. She's portrayed sort of as a temptress, isn't she? Yeah. That she sort of seduced John Proctor mm-hmm. after his wife had gone cold. Yeah. The sexual politics of the Crucible are, are awful. Mm-hmm. Really, oh, really, yeah. really, really bad. Yeah. And, and so that's this is also very... what this is partly about. Yes. Like, can we just flag <clears throat> exactly, that yes. Arthur Miller was making, like, did, like this is not okay? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Exactly. That's why, I mean, I think, it's, I, think, I think it's useful to think of it as a refocusing of the story of yeah, the Crucible sure. in that it tells it exactly from, absolutely from the, the young girl's points of view. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Abigail, her experience, as we see it here, and we never see any of the men, by the way. We never really, we never see any of the adults. We only see the girls. Her experience of sex and quote unquote love, because she's lost her parents, is uh, at the hands, literally, of the man who employs her. Yeah. It is really easy to look back at historical societies through 21st century eyes and be like, whoa, <laughs> outrageous. But in this particular case, <laughs> I think she's got a point. Yes, yes. <laughs> Exactly. There's a really interesting, again, sort of refashioning of the character of Mary Warren as yes, well. Yes, very interesting. Who is another orphan who has come to the village from some sort of other parish. There's an implication that her mother was a wise woman of some sort, you know, or and therefore by the standards of the time suspected probably of being a witch. Yeah. Uh, you know, that she understood a little bit about medicine, understood, you know, about childbirth and things like that. She was mm. a midwife, I think there's a hint as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. And there's a hint that... Which would have been quite common, actually. Like yes. Those women and midwives, they would have been making you know, tinctures and all that sort of stuff. Yes, exactly, yes. and things like that. Yeah, all that that stuff. And Mary Warren is also clearly, I think... um, Epileptic? Epileptic, yes. Which here is a sort of... Is treated sort of metaphorically as well, um, in that she becomes a sort of external onlooker on the play, mm. which again I wasn't sure if it quite worked. It was again, it's a fascinating idea, I think, really, really interesting, mm. and uh, she becomes a, a, a very interesting character because also her epilepsy looks like possession. Of course. Yeah. So you know when when she's fitting or when she's falling to the floor, everyone assumes that the the, the devil is in her. God, it he's is, busy, isn't he? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It is, it is, it is fascinating, and there's. There's something about seeing it in German Street, which is such a small underground mm, theatre that me. gives it a proper sort of 
crucible sense, you know, that, yeah. that you do feel you're looking down into this tiny mm. cauldron in which things are, are boiling over. And I think also all the actresses involved, there are four, I think, yeah. I think they all acquit themselves really well. They're all young, of course. They're all playing very young people. Yeah. All of the performances, though, they're all quite understated and they match each other on that level. That's been very nice. You know, either it's the actresses or it's the direction, but one way or another, that works really well. I think it's a very good ensemble. Yeah. And they're all kind of at slightly different moments of emergence from childhood. Mm. And they show that really well, especially sort of within an oppressive society. I was also pleased to see, and I'm making an assumption from their names here, but that most of the creative team is female. Mm. Again, this is an assumption, but I suspect that the fight director isn't. But yep. I might be wrong. But considering the stage is the size of a shoebox, it's not a bad fight either yes. when it happens. I think yes. it's quite good. Yes, it's true. Yeah. I wouldn't I mean I wouldn't say I found it hugely moving, but I was I was sort of enormously sympathetic and I felt, as I usually do about these things, extremely sufficiently enraged about it because it's a very good example of, you know, generations of women's potential being historically wasted by a profligate society yeah. that prefers to control them. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I was uh, I found about it is <clears throat> there's a quote I've been trying to nail down for years that I've never been able to find, which says that art that is based on art isn't really art at all. I've right. always, and I've always felt that, you know, although I do I do approve of people, you know, sort of. I, I sometimes think it feels like it's cheating that you're piggybacking on a on a sort of uh, on an established. But classic. art is but a thing here, in the world. Yes, 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 and I, and I, obviously, you know, I, if I. If, I love West Side Story. I love Romeo and Juliet. So it's well, ridiculous, you, you know. <laughs> yeah. it's, I think what I, what what I find is, you know, if, if you are piggybacking on a capital letters great work of literature, yeah, you yeah. know, which the Crucible remains despite yeah. it being dodgy. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we literally cannot to, let guys. Let's not cancel all the dodgy yeah, works yeah, of literature. Yeah. Exactly. No, no, quite. Left. You have to, but you have to, you have to make it something of itself. You have sure. to sufficiently sort of have sufficient invention and imagination to make it an entity in its own right. This was actually, did really feel like a new minted work that really informed and threw light on The Crucible uh, yeah. as well as being, you know, very, very engaging and entertaining yeah, in its own right. Yeah, I think so very much. And the final scene is pretty good, but I think it would have, and this is me like really picking nits here, but if you had a slightly increasing sound of running water under that scene then that would make an awful lot more sense of it right. in that space because yes. it's such a tiny scene and one character appears at the back and it's it's something is suggested but not made entirely clear because you can't because there's like three people crammed onto a stage and um, and I think that would have helped. That's completely opaque to anyone who hasn't seen it but <laughs> if you do see it, you know, have a think. But uh, I think it all made sense as well, the kind of what was suggested at the end made sense for what would have happened to Abigail. Yes. Yes. For me. Um, yes, the, the, the ending flashes forward to, to, the, to, to a year or more after The Crucible, doesn't it? So yeah, quite a bit. More, <coughs> all I, think. The, I think you're right, yes. Yes, all the characters have moved on considerably in life. One of them has a child. Yeah. One of them, well, they, the, several of them have children yeah. and, and, you know, one of them is married and so yeah. forth, you know. So, yeah. yeah. I really liked it. I'd be really interested to see what this writer does. Yes. Next. It sounds like, a, sounds like a fascinating play and I'm delighted it's... Raised another bugbear of Nick's uh, art about art to add to his <laughs> yeah. no writers writing right. about writing. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I may well check it out. It sounds great. It's on until uh, January the twenty seventh. So hurry. That's this week's episode of the Standard Theatre Podcast. Please do hit follow, leave a comment, tell your friends and feel free to drop us a line at theatrepod at standard.co.uk. Don't forget to give our previous shows a listen. They include interviews with Jared Harris, Sir Ian McKellen, Tuppence Middleton and many more. 
thanks to our producer, Rachel Abbott. Also, a huge thank you to this week's guest, Inez Mitchell. She's going to play us out with We Raise Our Cups from Hadestown, and we'll see you back here next Sunday. Pour the wine and raise a cup Drink up, brothers, you know how And spill a drop for Orpheus Wherever he is now Some birds sing when the sun shines bright Our praise is not for them But the ones who sing in the dead of night We raise our cups to them Drink them dry to Orpheus.